Have you ever wondered why some people, ideas, and careers advance rapidly? We discover the mindsets and the actions behind them. An extensive resume filled with success and impact, Rebecca Costa is a well-known American sociobiologist, futurist, and author. She's known as an expert in the field of fast adaption, um, with her work being featured in sources such as the New York Times, USA Today, Washington Post, and Mary King Live. Um, she's been a recipient of the Edward O. Wilson Biodiversity Technology Award, and prior to doing all of this, led one of the most successful advertising firms in Silicon Valley at the time. Um, her books, The Watchman's Rattle and On the Verge, have received critical acclaim from people such as Richard Branson, uh, Donald Trump, um, you know, Dr. James Watson, among many others. Uh, and I'm really excited to uh, speak with Rebecca today and talk about all the great experiences that she's had in her career. You know, in the early days, when you are first starting your, your advertising firm, prior to going on to beginning your research career, I know you um, led one of the most successful advertising firms in Silicon Valley at the time. I'm sure there were a few factors that uh, really, really drove that urgency to succeed and, and grow your business. I'd love to just start by you know, talking about those and um, what really drove that success in the early days. Well, yes, I, I, I think that success is driven always by a, a motive that propels you and then one that attracts you towards your goals, one that's dark and one that's light. In my particular case, I was very fear-driven. I was afraid that I would fail. I was afraid I would not be able to make a living and be able to eat and live in a clean and safe environment. Um, when I graduated from college, uh, my family had made it fairly clear that if I did go to college, the day after I graduated, I better be able to pay rent and support myself. And so that was a primary motive for me. But on the light side, on the positive side, I always had a natural curiosity. I, I, I liked physics and I liked mathematics. I liked things that were rules-based where there was a definitive and accurate answer uh, to problems. And I was always attracted to that. And I had a natural curiosity of pretty much how anything and everything worked. Uh, I, I don't have a, a judgment about things. I, 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 don't, I find frequently people judge things. Oh, that's good. That's bad. Uh, I don't really have that. I'm more interested in the mechanical aspect of how things actually function. And, uh, and those two things combined, I feel... Uh, in addition to the fact that my parents happened to decide to live in what later became Silicon Valley, the convergence of those three things, I think, really uh, helped to propel me to a successful career. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like um, those factors would certainly create um, you know, an environment for you and a mindset for you that would uh, allow you to really keep pushing and moving forward. Um, what were, like, to get a little more specific, were there times uh, where you did come close to failure, where those fears may have been close to materializing? Uh, I always like for our listeners out there, you know, that may be, um, you know, going through some uh, you know, unclear times or difficult times and trying to trying to grow their business. Um, 
it's always super valuable to just hear from really successful people like yourself uh, some of the some of the adversities that may have popped up and you know how you really overcame them well i am you know i am the result of epic failures in my career i don't even uh, i don't even try to make them okay i made uh, many many poor judgments and took a lot of uh, bad bets and bad risks in my career and, you know, while people look now and say, well, yes, but you're successful now. Well, remember, I'm 64 years old. And, and, and you know, during that time, I had some things go right. <laughs> they didn't all go wrong. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, it, 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 it might look like I'm successful. But if I hadn't had made all the mistakes and had all the epic failures I'd had, I would have been much more successful. I'd be Oprah Winfrey today. So it's all relative, you know, your, your standard for what success really means is in your head. And in my head, uh, I, I certainly have paid the price, uh, for those failures in that I am not Oprah. I'm not even close. So, you know, some people could say, well, why are you even interviewing her if she's been such an epic failure? Well, here's what I, I would say. If you're not having failure, then you're probably not putting yourself uh, to the test of what your true capabilities are because you have to bump up against failure to know how good you are. So if you don't need to know how good you are, and there are a lot of people that don't care to test that, and that's okay. Everybody mm -hmm. doesn't have to do it. But there are some of us that need, and I, and I use the word need, just like breathing oxygen, we need to test what our real capabilities are. And, and that doesn't come from other people telling us what our capabilities are, because that won't do us any good. Those who love us will tell us we're fantastic and terrific and we can accomplish anything. That's a lie. We can't. Uh, those who don't like us will try to quash us and, and make us feel that our capabilities are limited or, or even defective. But to really know, you've got to go out and test the limits. You've got to walk on the edge and hang your feet over and sometimes fall over and pick yourself back up and say, all right, that was a limit. Now, can I extend that limit? Or is that really something that I am not capable of doing and, uh, and come to terms with that? So I, I, you know, I, I think success is all relative and certainly uh, I have paid the price for many, many failures. But in that process, I've gained a very important thing. I have tremendous self-knowledge and yeah. tremendous peace and contentment with who I am and what I am because I know what that is. Absolutely. Um, and that, I mean, that idea that there are more wrong answers than right answers and you know, as an individual, we need to be willing to take action and jump into things to figure out what the wrong answers are so we can later find the right answers. I mean, that's a, uh, one of the things that you've really emphasized in past talks. I think I saw it in a, maybe a TED talk of yours that, um, you know, going into the next couple of decades, um, you know, that that's go just going to escalate. You know, there will continue to be a lot more wrong answers than there are right answers as we go into, uh, you know, a very significant time and, and how um, we evolve as a species and, and the role that technology plays in that. Um, you know, 
how, maybe maybe speak to that. Um, why is it that you know this mystery and this com- complexity and um, this ability to kind of uh, navigate the world in an effective way is going to get more difficult, and those skills that you mentioned are going to become more valuable. Well, as you know, in my book, The Watchman's Rattle, uh, it should have been a dark horse. It, it really, five copies should have been sold. To my surprise, and it was my first book, uh, it went to 27 countries and became a bestseller. And even today, it's in the top 1%. This is seven years later. It's still in the top 1% of Amazon book sales. That never happens for a nonfiction science book, right? So uh, why was everybody interested in it? Well, I became very interested in what happens when societies and their laws and their processes for just accomplishing everyday tasks become too complex for how far the brain has evolved. Was there a possibility that there was a cognitive threshold uh, of which we could handle certain amounts of complexity. And then when the society got more complex than that, were there some symptoms that those societies revealed? And it turns out that there's several steps that occur before a society unilaterally collapses. So I went back and I, I studied the Romans, the Khmer empire, the Ming dynasty, the Egyptian empire, the, uh, you know, the Mayans. I, I, I started to look for, What signs were they showing prior to collapse? What behaviors were they exhibiting? And it turns out that there was a clear pattern. The pattern before the collapse was that their societies became so complex, the information that the person on the street had to be able to absorb and understand in order to make rational decisions, not irrational ones, rational ones based on fact, uh, Things became so complex that that they they didn't have a grasp of what was an empirical fact and what was an unproven belief. So over time, unproven beliefs began to shape public policy because people didn't did couldn't tell the difference of whether something was empirical or not. And as public policy began to be dominated by unproven beliefs, the society became very vulnerable. Uh, because uh, public policy became fundamentally irrational and the society became vulnerable to some cataclysmic event that would tip them over the edge. And so I wrote this book seven years ago, not knowing the situation we are in today, but people feel that those signs, the growing complexity, the mass confusion between what's an empirical fact and what's a unproven belief, the forging of public policy on unproven beliefs, those three stages they feel that we're going through right now and that that's making us vulnerable for some kind of global collapse. So who, who really need, and that's, that's fascinating, um, Rebecca. And, and I think uh, our first gut instinct is really to think that, you know, everything we're experiencing now, the way that the world is changing is, um, you know, kind of unique to our time, uh, and we don't typically think to some of the things you're mentioning that, um, you know, this is a cycle, this has happened before, you know, slightly different circumstances, but the principle of what we're going through is similar. Um, in saying that, I mean, the people that, you know, 
do understand uh, that, you know, there's a radical change happening. There's the potential for a downward spiral. There's a potential for things to go amiss. Um, where does the burden of responsibility really lie in ensuring that uh, we can navigate this or even in just ensuring that, you know, all this technology that we have in front of us that is, you know, largely sparking um, some of these concerns um, is used for the common good. I mean, does that fall on? You know, I go back to what uh, the famous naturalist uh, Edward O. Wilson said. He said, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And that's fundamentally the problem, the intersection of those three things. So when you think about it, we've now deconstructed the human genome, and we now know that we have less than a 3% difference in genetic makeup from a bonobo monkey. And we've effectively given that bonobo monkey all of the civilization and technology and data, you know, and, uh, and, and instead of actually using the data for the greater good, what we do is we have leaders who have never taken a science course and who now have to make policy on uh, nuclear energy. And they never passed a physics class before. And they have to make decisions on health care and very complex issues for which they really don't have any uh, uh, significant background or, or qualifications. Most uh, of the leaders have a degree in law or political science. But those aren't the, the, the issues that we're dealing with today. We, you need a tremendous amount of expertise. And it's far exceeded what any human being uh, could have the capability to, uh, to use the data that we have to make these decisions. So to that extent, to the, um, to the degree that we rely on artificial intelligence, big data systems, predictive analytics, that we use technology to give us the empirical facts so that we don't rely on paleolithic primitive emotions to take us down the path that other civilizations have gone down previously. We have that opportunity. No other generation has had that opportunity. No other generation had tools which allowed them to create algorithms to predict future events with precise accuracy and then be able to act to avert negative outcomes. This is the first time in the brief history in which human organi the human organism has been on the planet that we've had that capability. What is distressing is we're not using the capability in that way. We're still, I mean, all you have to do is look at Washington, D.C. and see that we have tribal infighting going on, and we're really not much better than the Neanderthals. Um, what makes it uh, embarrassing is the Neanderthals didn't have an alternative, and they didn't have the tools that we have today. And that makes it a little bit embarrassing um, in terms of a scientist. Yeah. Mm hmm so, so really, it sounds like we're, we're focusing on kind of the escalated uh, side effects of some of this technology rather than the core of what's kind of driving the stir of emotions and, and the chaos overall. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? We're, we're, we're focusing we're, on the side effects using, rather than the actual. Yeah, we're using technology to, to uh, 
you know, fan the flames of prehistoric emotions. That, that is how we're using technology. Like one of the top uses of, te- of the internet remains pornography. You know, I, I mean, I'm not against pornography. It's fine. You know, but is that really the highest use of a tool that will allow us to collaborate in science and in politics and uh, and communicate with one another? I mean, you know, we tend to just take the technology and, and use it like a, uh, a a bonobo monkey would would uh, use a hammer. You know, I, I mean, we're just uh, we're we're not we're not rising to our true potential as you know, when you look at the, uh, the, the living pyramid of all living organisms on the planet, the human beings are at the top of that pyramid above millions and millions, starting with single celled organisms all the way on up to mammals. We're it. And we're behaving in, in such a, we're behaving like lower animals instead of using the tools we have to forge better societies, better role models, better care for the elderly, you know, uh, a better educated society. We're not we're not using those tools in that way. And I will tell you, as a futurist, I tend to think millions of years out and then look backwards to today. That's that's how I look. And I, I will tell you that this will be an embarrassing period in human evolution. So how aligned is the market with the problems we should be solving right now. I mean, obviously, you know, commercially, um, we're developing, you know, probably hundreds of, uh, you know, AI and machine learning enabled tools for, you know, the purposes of marketing, for the purposes of business management, uh, and so on. Um, I'd be really curious, more specifically, your perspective on um, some of these tools that we're building that are leveraging AI and machine learning. Um, you know, are they are they the problems that we should be focusing on, or um, you know, are we kind of just spinning our tires and finding ways to commercialize AI um, prior to it even being fully developed? Uh, and I uh, risk a run-on question here, but how far along really are we in uh, the development of of AI for the purposes of actually using it and uh, for business objectives overall? Well, well, AI is moving at a very, very fast pace. You'll you'll remember that AI was around 30 years ago, and it kept stalling out. We we couldn't get it right, and and we didn't yeah. really have a need for it because we weren't develop. You know, we were so focused on data production and distribution, right? And and so once we got distribution, wireless distribution, and cellular distribution uh, set up everywhere. Uh, at any time. And once we were producing as much data as we have over the entire, you know, course of humankind uh, in just a couple of years, I mean, we keep replicating that information every couple of years. I mean, once we got to that point, we realized producing more data isn't really going to be helpful if you can't use it to look for patterns. The highest use of AI right now is really in predictive analytics. It's in being able to take a lot of data, right, and look for a pattern that we didn't know existed that will inform us of what the probable future outcome is. And if that outcome represents a danger or some negative outcome, to be able to act prophylactically to prevent it, 
So a good example that I give people, you know, when I talk like this, people are, I find they move away from me at cocktail parties. You know, they're going, what are you even talking about? Right. So, so let's just put this in, in realistic perspective. So a lot of people don't know, but we can predict with about an 86 to 90% accuracy that a person is going to trip and fall within a, the next three weeks. Now, when I say that, everyone looks at me like I've been smoking something funny. And, and I say, no, uh, we, you know, uh, predictive analytics and, and uh, inexpensive sensor technology has allowed us to uncover a precursor to your fall. And that precursor is that your walking gait, your normal walking gait changes anywhere from two to three centimeters uh, a, a step. And uh, that's indiscernible by the human eye. So pretty soon you're going to see the outcome of, of um, uh, Fitbit-like devices that'll fit on the ankle. And as soon as, you know, your normal everyday walking gait changes within that two to three centimeter margin, you'll it'll ping your cell phone and say you're in danger of taking a fall. Now, what does that mean to the elderly? It means that, you know, many times a fall means you can't live independently anymore. You're going to go into assisted living and it's the beginning of the end. So anything you can do to prevent a fall is number one means you can live independently. And second of all, it's, it's, it takes pressure off the healthcare system because uh, many operations, hip replacements, knee replacements are as a result of a fall. So it has all kinds of downstream benefits if we can prevent the fall. And we're, and you know that if we're at the point now where we can predict you're going to fall within 86 to 90% today, the way that technology works is, you know, a, a year from now or two years from now, we'll be up to 99% you're going to fall tomorrow. I mean, that's what happens. That's the incremental improvement that we can expect to see through AI and predictive analytics technology. So the real holy grail of AI is being able to head off and uh, and and prevent uh, negative outcomes from occurring. And whether that's uh, evacuating people prior to a high probability of a tornado or a flood, or whether that's being able to use genetic testing at the time you're born to look at your predispositions for depression, violence, certain types yeah. of cancers, and then using genetic um, therapies, uh, making sure that you don't ever have to deal with those those ailments. Uh, all of these are coming down the pike. So um, you're a futurist, so I'll ask uh, you know, a very blunt and straightforward question. Um, where is that inflection point? Do you think? And you know how like how far away are we from some of these things that you're saying? Is it you know next year? Is it a decade? Or you know maybe somewhere in between? Are we? How close are we? If you had to make a kind of a foresight prediction on that. Well, we have quantum computing, uh, which, you know, is uh, uh, going to be replace classical computing that we're familiar with today. That's going to uh, happen in the next 10 years. Uh, more and more, um, you know, we just put the GOES satellites up into outer space that are giving us five times the resolution and data. And that means, you know, much more accuracy in weather predictions than we've ever had before. So all of this is going to start to accelerate really quickly to the point where we can head many things off and not have to deal with them. Uh, 
in my book, it's a 50-50 race whether we get there smoothly or we experience a unilateral global collapse that sends civilization into absolute chaos. It's 50-50 right now. Uh, I think it's a horse race. If, if, we, if we can get the technology, if we can get government leaders to rely on data as opposed to their emotions and tribalism, uh, I think that, and, and we can elect more scientists or data-focused people, I think we're going to be better off. But if it continues to go the way that it's going right now, uh, we... we we may we may be in for a really radical correction, and uh, and that's what I I worry about the most. Well, I can certainly see how uh, the end of the world is not a, a hot cocktail party topic of conversation. Um, but uh, I well, it's not really it's, the end of the world. What'll happen is when yeah. when I talk about collapse, I don't mean everyone's going to die. Uh, what I mean is is that social systems will revert to what our what our brains can handle from a physiological standpoint so today we can, we nobody understands what credit default swaps are and all these uh, crazy instruments that are developed on wall street even the financial experts can't explain certain instruments uh but if we have a, a unilateral collapse we'll go back to bartering you'll have some uh, eggs. I'll have some carrots. We'll meet in the street. We'll bicker until we both feel that we got the better of the the deal, and then uh, we'll make an exchange and go away. And that's pretty much what our brains can handle as of this point. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the blockchain and and cryptocurrency enthusiasts um, may not may not like to hear that that prediction. Overall, um, I'm curious, you know, since you've really dived into the the topic. Um, how are some of these new uh, financial instruments that you know, have been developed and, and are being uh, leveraged in the form of blockchain technologies and so on? Um, what role do you really see see that playing? Because that's another kind of um, popular um, thing to talk about these days and certainly um, something that a lot of um, organizations and people are really diving into and trying to develop and predict where it's going. I look, I, I talk around the world about technology and what's coming down the pike in the next one, three, five, 10 and 25 years. That's my job as a futurist and also as a, as a researcher. Um, and so I, I don't want to, uh, what do I want to say? I, I don't want to knock technology in any way, but, but you can't eat software. You know, if we have an economic collapse, uh, look at Venezuela as an example. Nobody's talking about blockchain technology, right, and quantum computing in Venezuela right now. You've got millions of people walking, not in cars, not on, you know, um, uh, uh, hoverboards and scooters. They're, they're walking out of their country because they need food and water. And there, it's a 50-50 chance that economies may, all economies around the world may go through that and have to rebuild back up. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to act like I'm catastrophizing, but if you really want to know how important technology is, look at Venezuela right now. Not very important. 
Yeah. You still are a biological organism. You're not a computer. You need air, food, water, safe place to sleep and give birth to protect your children. I mean, these are the fundamental things that that's the safety net that you hope to never fall below. What I'm saying is, is technology offers us a way out, but only if we use it, only if our leaders use it to guide us through rational public policy. If our leaders continue to ignore the evidence and ignore the data because they are agenda based, then then we're going to head toward Venezuela. Every every country will be dealing with just eating, eating and drinking. <laughs> that's a that's a really interesting and um you know, probably um you know unusual unusual take on the future of um, where our economic systems are going um you know i i'm sure you've really uh, researched this quite a bit i'm just looking well, you at can't, uh, well, you can't eat bitcoin yeah it's true yeah yeah um so what what do our leaders like, how do we close this knowledge gap? Because right now, you know, you've mentioned that um, one of our uh, one of our weaknesses is that uh, we're not, you know, we don't have the knowledge or we're not focused on acquiring the right forms of knowledge uh, for our government leaders. Um, you know, how do we how do we really how do we close that gap? What like what do we need to do? What are, what do our leaders need to do to be more in tune with um, these things that you're saying are are pending um, and um, you know what what does that really look like the process of avoiding the uh, the bad outcome essentially well I think just you know just actual clarity if if you you know I, I had the other night I was on a radio program and a bunch of callers called in and, and they wanted to argue about climate change you know and uh and I don't know how climate change became a political football, but clearly it has become. But, you know, whether you're uh, on the far right or the far left, last time I checked, you still need fresh air and water and food. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you still need yeah. the same environment. It doesn't matter what your political outlooks are. And, uh, and, and we were talking about it and I said, you know, we have billions now with, with a B, billions and billions of readings of the Earth's surface temperature from all around the world. And even when you take out the extremes, extreme highs and extreme lows uh, and, and account for error rates or even manipulation, uh, we know that the temperature of the Earth's surface is going up and it's actually increasingly going up fa at a faster rate than we anticipated. That can't be argued. The thing that can be argued and is a fair argument, in my opinion, is how much is human activity contributing to that? Because we don't really know that. And, and, and that's going to bug a lot of people that are listening to your podcast because, that I'm saying that. But the fact is, is that this might be a million year cycle, two million year, five million year cycle that the Earth goes through. We look at geological data and we don't think so, but we haven't been keeping records for that long and we just don't know what kind of cycle this is. And, and so when it comes to human contribution to climate change, it's somewhere between zero and 100%. Well, 
guess what? It's probably not zero yeah. because we've populated like crazy and we're burning fossil fuels and we're cutting down forests. And, you know, our, our activity would tend to indicate that we are participants in climate change. And it's probably not 100 percent either. Because the Earth is a living organism in and of itself. The biosphere, the, the uh, eco ecological environment is its, own is its own organism. And so it's probably not zero and it's probably not 100%. So the argument that can be made is, well, it's 10%, it's 50% caused by humans, it's 80%. Okay, doesn't matter to me. Because when it comes to things that could eradicate the entire species of humanity... It'd be better to be safe than sorry. Why can't we just let it rest at that? Let's act yeah. prudently. At, and, and look, we, as, as a global uh, population, we might get all the countries in the world to agree to stop burning fossil fuels and go to clean energy, paint all uh, roofs white, do everything in mass that we can do. And we may have no effect or such a little effect that it doesn't matter. Uh, but I don't care. I don't care because we have to do something. And even if that something doesn't turn out to do much, at least, you know, we went down with a fight. So um, one thing I'm really gathering, Rebecca, is, is, you know, the reason that, I mean, we hadn't met prior to this. I had reached out to you and uh, very much appreciated you agreeing to take the time to do the podcast. Uh, so what I'm gathering is, you know, the reason you're you're speaking, the reason you're um, doing podcasts and um, really um, expo distributing these ideas um, that have been put into focus for you is to essentially put it into focus uh, for the rest of the world uh, as well. Um, I mean, is that is that your is that your goal at this point as a as a futurist, as a sociobiologist, is to just you know, get the word out there and inform as many people as possible. Um, what are your What are your plans to? Because uh, you're aware of a problem that a lot of people aren't aren't aware of, and you've looked into this. Um, you know, do you have any plans specifically um, to really uh, to really help in aiding this situation and and you know helping us tackle these problems? Um, is your mantra kind of just to inform as many people as possible, or does your research actually involved, um, you know, finding ways to um, put forth solutions to some of our leaders and, and other people as well. It's a bit more of a, maybe a personal question, but um, hope it's uh, appropriate there. Yeah. Well, I, you know, as you know, I, I do keynote speech speaking all around the world. I'm gone every other week um, from my home to speak to the public. Surprisingly enough, uh, I consult with uh, a lot of uh, agencies in Washington, D.C., trying to get them to rely more on data and facts in forging public policy rather than, uh, you know, um, political agendas and tribalism. Uh, so I, I, I work with um, uh, several agencies in uh, Washington, D.C. and government leaders around the world. Um, and, uh, and surprisingly, um, I consult with a lot of large corporations who want to make changes, but are running into what I call institutional resistance because they're Pavlovian, you know, they tend to want to do the same things that, that were responsible for their success. 
right? I mean, once you've been positively reinforced, you want to repeat that behavior. And corporations aren't any different than individuals. And so they want to keep repeating a behavior, even if that behavior is really destructive. And so um, many times I'm working with large, very large multinational corporations to help them to overcome institutional resistance so that they can do the right thing, not only by the corporation, but also by society and for the greater good. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I literally work seven days a week doing that. And also I, you know, I write these books that I hope people will read because it's hard to get all of it in just a simple podcast or an interview. And, I, unfortunately, you know, I write so that people can take the book to the beach. You know, I don't, I, I don't yeah. write like a scientist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I would, uh, I would 100% recommend anybody that's listening to the podcast to really pick up a copy of, uh, of Rebecca's book. Uh, you know, her first one, The Washington's Rattle and On the Verge. Uh, I mentioned it in the intro, but, um, you know, Certainly, Rebecca. I'm sure you dive a lot deeper into these into these topics. Uh, I'd love uh, just to hear a little bit more on on something you you just mentioned regarding uh, helping organizations to kind of cut through some of this resistance to being able to uh, innovate and um, tackle these issues. Um, you know how have, how have you enabled them to do that specifically? I'm sure your research and bringing those knowledge and insights um, into play. Um, you know, on its own is, is enlightening, but, um, how do you, how do you kind of let, uh, push them or allow them to really cut through some of that bureaucracy and, and really do it? Are there, you know, specific examples or where, where you've seen that impact kind of in action? Yeah, there's, you know, there in, in every large corporation, there's usually some younger people, right? The older folks that have been in that corporation, and I'm talking about the, the really biggest Fortune 500 companies, they're, they're typically dominated by people that are over the age of 50 at the uh, CEO, uh, executive VP level, and even at the senior director level. And then underneath them, there's a big age gap. Right. There's younger people who know things could be done better, but they but they don't know how to navigate inside the the organization uh, in order to reduce the risk and fear profile in order to create change. Uh, so you you have this. Um, I don't know what I, this this sort of discontinuity in every corporation where the people who hold the uh, purse strings uh, want to continue doing what they've done in the past that have made them that that have brought them the success and the power that they have, and then you have and and inside they know things are changing and they need to adapt, but they're resistant. They're emotionally and psychologically resistant, not rationally resistant. They know they need to do it, but nine times out of 10, there's young people yakking at them that they don't even understand what those young people are talking about. That's how big the divide is. And, mm-hmm. and the young people don't know how to convince those in a, that have authority and power and hold the purse yeah. strings to move forward. And so they tend to get very frustrated and they leave the company and they think that somewhere else it'll be better. Um, And uh, unfortunately, uh, that doesn't help anybody. So many times I'm working with uh, younger groups 
and the senior executive staff from the CEO to the board of directors to try to figure out, you know, a pathway and a methodology to institutionalize innovation. You know, you have to create reliable pathways uh, and systems and methodologies for innovation to be able to move faster in that organization. And that, that in and of itself requires systems. So that's mainly what I work on. Is, um, you know, the reason you're working, is it a resource, um, is it a resource thing? Is that why you're working with some of these larger organizations? Why not focus on, um, you know, the less, um, I guess the less slow moving, um, enterprises and, and kind of shift the focus to smaller organizations that, uh, you know, have big ideas that can make a difference. Yeah. Smaller organizations don't have this problem. You know, uh, startups don't have this problem. You might have a startup of six or 10 people and their whole, uh, their whole success depends on them moving quickly and being innovative and thinking outside the box. Otherwise, they don't have a business. It's, it's the large companies that are trying to keep up. It's, uh, as an example, how does, you know, when, when Amazon came on the scene, what, you know, what was Walmart's response? Well, Walmart's response was to continue doing what they had done all along. Keep building superstores. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and why was that? Because, because a, a company's culture is always based on the founder, right? This is why large companies don't change all that much. And Walmart's founder was Sam Walton. And he believed in giving um, high value, right? Low cost goods to people uh, with a big selection. And he believed in massive superstores. So when Amazon came around, Walmart couldn't grasp it. They could not grasp how that would work. People were going to order things without looking at them, <laughs> without touching them, without going to a store. And and Amazon started eating their lunch. And they, in spite of Amazon growing at astronomical rates and eating their lunch, they couldn't change. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, I read it somewhere that, um, you know, this most of the work is done by the square root of an organization. So as companies grow and get larger, um, you know, it's a smaller and smaller pool that's moving the needle and, and, and actually being productive. Um, I mean, AI is, I would say, set to escalate that, I'm sure, um, creating, you know, a, a knowledge gap between um, the overall employment sector, just anybody that, is working, you know, on the lower end or, or middle class. Um, how is that? Maybe more specifically, how is how how are that, those effects um, going to be amplified moving forward? Um, and how can the maybe even the the average person um, keep up with the rate of change here? Well, uh, I think that yeah, I, I think that you were are implying something that's very important that we have to understand. And that is that the people who get their hands on quantum computing, predictive analytics and artificial intelligence first have the upper hand because they know what's going to happen in the future. And if we think we have a predatory environment now, 
Well, just imagine what it's like for people to be able to have algorithms that predict within 99% what the stock market's going to do or what a, a, a consumer is going to buy. You know, that kind of intelligence is such a massive advantage that uh, it, it can't be overcome by simply uh, perseverance. For small businesses that don't have access to artificial intelligence, it will be a tough road. This is why I worry about unilateral economic collapse, because we already have predat a predatory environment, and I believe it will get worse before it gets better. But here's where I say it's a horse race, because like all technology, uh, technology tends to become democratized. Right. As the price comes down and it always comes down very swiftly, more swiftly than anyone predicts, more and more people can afford it. So think about the original cell phones, the uh, business executives that had those big phones that, you know, were uh, the size of a loaf of bread. You can you, when you watch old movies now, <laughs> you know, that were maybe yeah. 20 years old, you go, wow, look at that giant phone with the antenna sticking out that they've got by their head. Uh, it kind of dates the film, uh, but people who had those could conduct better business than than the rest of us. And yet those phones were $100,000. So it wasn't as though a mom and pop business was going to buy it. But in a very short amount of time, within almost a decade, uh, cellular phones became affordable to anybody. And now kids have them. So it's always a race, uh, whether the predatory uh conditions uh, annihilate the economy or or the prices come down, the availability becomes so widespread that everybody moves to the next step in progress together, right? And the advantage is quickly nullified. Uh, this is always a question. It's always a question in my mind. So, um, you know, this has been really great, Rebecca. Just a a final kind of question here, um, specifically for, for the listeners that we have and in, in certainly related to some of those points that you just mentioned. Um, what can we do as, as entrepreneurs, you know, as, you know, maybe, maybe you're a two time founder that's, you know, looking to form an, an idea, uh, looking to make the world a better place, or you're just starting out. Um, what we, can we do is, is, uh, founders as entrepreneurs to, really ensure that um, we're focusing on the right area and that we're uh, engaging in projects and initiatives that, um, you know, put us in a position for success, but also um, address some of these problems and, and make the world a better place. Uh, where should our head be at? And moving forward specifically well well i think the, the the first and most important thing is be prepared for large amounts of failure fail fast and forgive yourself fast and move on move as quickly as you can uh, uh think about the venture capitalist model as much as possible uh venture capitalists uh, you know, they have tremendous ability to do diligence on companies before they invest but even venture capitalists with all that capability, they only call it right 10 or 15% of the time. The rest of the time they're failing. And yet anybody who knows a successful venture capitalist would hardly call them a failure. 
right? I mean, all the venture capitalists I know are really wealthy. They own homes all over the world and fly in private jets, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so how you would ask yourself, how can they do that when they're failing 85 and 90 percent of the time? It's it's because they know that that is the rate of failure that they have to expect. And so the wins, they make sure that the wins far out dwarf the losses. And that's the environment that you're in, because the definition of complexity is there's more wrong choices than there are right ones. And the number of wrong ones are exponentially growing. And if that's the condition, then we're all venture capitalists and we're going to make more bad bets than we are good bets. But the good bets are going to overwhelm the negative consequences of the bad bets. And that's how we have to look at our business models from here on out. Absolutely. And um, that sounds like a, you know, a timeless principle that is just becoming more and more uh, crucial at this point. Uh, I'm really uh, thrilled. It was really great to have you on the podcast, Rebecca. Um, you know, grateful that um, I had the chance to speak with you and that you are really leading uh, the charge here on spreading some of these ideas and uh, trying to ensure that we can uh, make the world a better place and really be well equipped for some of the things we're, we're facing. I appreciate it. And uh, it was great to have you on. Yeah, right back at you. And I appreciate the good work that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you very much.